Welcome in our today's episode. This one is a bit of a special one and therefore a bit longer. Um, I'm talking to David Luke. Now, David is one of the world's leading researchers when it comes to human exceptional experiences. It includes dreams, it includes psychedelic experiences, and he's also one of the leading researchers in modern psychedelic research. His work touches different parts of our life. He is interested in the psychology of these experiences. But most importantly, his research evokes this sense of uh, curiosity which is somehow fundamental to being human. So um, a lot of things which you would hear in this conversation is covered in detail in a book which he wrote recently, uh, uh, which is uh, it's called DMT Dialogues, which is included in the link. So let's welcome our guest for today, David Luke. So how would you like to introduce um, your research? Because, I mean, it's easier to talk about something and say that, oh, it's fantastic. But I truly believe that <laughs> the work you are doing, it is mind-blowing, actually literally and <laughs> figuratively. <laughs> that is what you experience. And it is fantastic. So... Um, it is hard for me to actually give a one two line introduction because uh, you do touch few different kind of areas. So it would be great if you can, you know, introduce what are the uh, touchdown kind of areas. And then for sure, I would love to know more about it. Sure. Fantastic. Well, thanks for the invitation. I guess the, the large umbrella you could put over all of my work is that it explores the psychology of altered states of consciousness and what I call exceptional human experience. So that might be out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences, mystical experiences and so on, uh, that are induced through some kind of technique of going into an altered state of consciousness, be it meditation or dreams or hypnosis or some shamanic techniques or psychoactive substances, psychedelic drugs. So that's the kind of broad area. And uh, so... I I'm in a kind of niche research field, so it, it's it's kind of a broad domain, and it, within it, there's a I have a lot of different angles on my research. So I take a kind of from hard kind of neuroscientific approach to pure ethnography. You know, rolling my sleeves up and getting get my hands dirty uh, with indigenous tribes, for instance, doing ethnography. So, so uh, I would love to know a bit more about the field work because. Uh, Generally, what I've listened to or I've read the research mostly in the labs, mm -hmm. but it's interesting because I think there are very few people who cross over, so we actually go to the field. And uh, are you also participating with the the indigenous cultures? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I take a kind of participant observation approach, so uh, I've engaged in in various activities and ceremonies and so on and so forth with uh, mediums and shamans primarily in various parts of the world mostly in, in South America um, and Central America actually in fact mostly Mexico okay so now uh, I guess the word 
which we should of course we would be saying that a lot which is psychedelics mm-hmm. and this is uh something which means somehow that your mind and your brain and uh, you are having a conscious altering experience and that's what one of the big aspects of your research is so psychedelics come from um different methods it could be somehow attained uh, endogenously mm-hmm. and it could be attained through different drugs or plants whatever the term you want to use so what is what is your definition about this experience i guess uh, the the easiest way to kind of categorize them are that many drugs have psychoactive effects you know like coffee or cocaine or alcohol but they're usually uh, a matter of uh, degree in terms of how how things shift you know uh, so they're kind of quantitative changes in your kind of normal state of functioning whereas psychedelics have profound qualitative changes in your your sense of everything basically your your consciousness your conscious experience your sense of time your sense of your body your sense of meaning your emotions everything can uh, shift and change under the influence of psychedelics so uh now why would we do this research i mean first of all this is one of the biggest uh, issues because it's a very controversial topic it's some of it is still banned and few of the substances are now allowed to do research on so of course i mean anyone who hears about psychedelic anyone who hears about anything which is related to this drug they still think that what is the point when we know that it is very dangerous and it that's the reason why it was banned so i mean what would be the uh, what, what what can we first initially talk about and what are you finding out like what is the initial reason for actually doing the research so i'll, I'll probably kind of contextualize it historically because um so you they kind of these substances first started coming to light in in the kind of about the 1950s in, in a big way in a serious way when they started being researched in earnest and uh, they started looking at various uh psychotherapeutic potentials of using psychedelic substances within psychiatry and psychotherapy and uh during the 50s and 60s they did find many potential uses for them in, as treatments and then of course the 1960s kind of cultural hippie era began you know the human potential movement and so on and there was a big uh, cultural backlash to that and of course they were then became prohibited and, but it didn't stop people taking them in fact and the number of people taking these drugs as with all drugs has steadily increased over the last 50 years despite prohibition but it, what it did do is it stopped scientific research with humans with psychedelics so a lot of the research that's happening now which is renaissance kind of psychedelic research renaissance uh and suddenly these substances have been explored uh at various in, uh, institutions and universities um they're starting off by initially going back and 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 retesting all these kind of early findings of of their clinical uses and benefits so that's one of the kind of uses of uh psychedelic research currently is is looking at the therapeutic potential so the use of psilocybin for depression treatment of addictions uh treating end of life uh anxiety and depression associated with terminal cancer for instance or the use of uh, MDMA for the treatment of post traumatic stress disorder and the kind of initial findings seem to support everything that we thought in in the 1950s and 60s that these have a huge potential in treating very difficult to treat um psychological conditions of uh, addictions depression anxiety and so on and so forth so that's a one whole arm of it there's the the, the clinical benefits which is 
you know, it's, it's huge. It shouldn't be understated. You know, psychiatry is in a kind of a state of crisis. It hasn't really progressed significantly in the last hundred years. Uh, you know, my colleagues will say actually the best treatment for depression is still ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, uh, but that has huge side effects. You know, and it's it's somewhat barbaric, you could say, and um, isn't well understood either. Uh, whereas we have this whole new raft or well, an old or revisited raft of, of potential treatments within psychedelics for treating all these difficult conditions. And the preliminary findings are, are, are hugely supportive of, of their potential to treat these conditions. So that's whole, one whole side of it. And then there is a whole raft of other related uh, research, such as uh, neuroscience and psychology and biomedicine, and understanding you know, the nature of, of consciousness and the mind and cognition through the exploration of, of these psychoactive substances. Because we can understand the underlying chemistry. The chemistry is known pretty well. We understand, therefore, more about the, the underlying neuro biology and that can tell us a lot about the, the ordinary neurobiology of consciousness as well by perturbing the brain or kind of making these changes to consciousness we can see how um, these effects have uh, underlying brain mechanisms which we can understand much more about then there's a whole other raft of kind of possible research avenues um, and my own particular flavor is, is exploring the, the psychological uh, components but are on the on the more exotic end of the scale so a lot of altered states and particularly psychedelics uh, give rise to all kinds of what we might call transpersonal or exceptional experiences uh, where people feel like they're transcending their ordinary ego identity and uh, connecting with something beyond them be it another person or another species or uh, some kind of uh, spiritual experience connection of unity consciousness or somehow some kind of cosmic experience not in a hippie kind of cosmic <laughs> way but so there's a uh, these are very prevalent experiences and that yeah they're poorly understood so there's a whole area of research to explore there and just to add that all the mystical kind of experiences these these transpersonal experiences also bear a lot of relevance on the clinical work uh, because we're finding that in those studies where they're using say psilocybin for depression or end of life uh, cancer uh, or addictions, the people who fare the best, who have the best clinical outcomes, are those people who have these full mystical experiences under the influence of the psilocybin. So there's uh, there's some important relevance there for the clinical side of things as well. Yeah, and I mean, this is not surprising just because uh, I think there is a um, lineage of knowledge which is somehow a bit broken because these are the substances and the plants which uh, I think our civilization and humans are using for at least thousands of years, if not more. And uh, there has been a lot of uh, documented um, uh, proof about it. There's, it's, I don't think it, th this is uh, anyway some sort of a controversial thing to say. No. So, so, I mean, so that means that somehow uh, this is part of our evolution. And of course, if humans are using it and we are co-evolving somehow with the plants and uh, whether or not, I mean, we can come to it um, later on in the discussion if it is an evolutionary advantage or not to have a conscious altering experience and that's how you get to it. But either or not, uh, if you are used to it and if we are, if humans are using it for, for decades or, or, or thousands of years, clearly there would be some sort of uh, use 
um, some sort of an advantage which you are getting even on just personal level, even on social level, even within hundred years. So, I mean, is there is what is the story of this uh, coevolution? Yeah, absolutely. It's a super fascinating question. Like you say, we have evidence to suggest that you know our, our indigenous forebears, people in shamanic cultures around the world, so called, uh, have been using these substances for thousands of years, maybe tens of thousands of years in some cases from archaeological evidence, uh, possibly much longer, you know, speculations that the earliest human art, you know, a Paleolithic rock art, um, shows all the telltale signs of being uh, created under the influence of, you know, an altered state of consciousness, which could have been derived from taking plant or fungal psychedelics, or it could be just being in the dark recess of a cave or drumming or chanting or something. Uh, but our ancestors appear to have been inspired through their altered states to create the very first human art. Um, and that's, you know, it's fairly well considered uh, debate in, in archaeology. So the, the providence of this is, is ancient, it seems. And uh, as for the evolutionary benefits, well, it could have, in fact, initiated uh, a cultural explosion with our and all the concomitant changes in the shift of uh, human evolution that happened whenever that was when they were doing I'm not an archaeologist, but <laughs> I think what we're looking at something like uh, up to 100,000 years ago or something like that, maybe the maximum. Uh, so there are other potential advantages as well, not least for, of course, you know, social cohesion, lack of depression and anxiety and things, which are to some extent 21st century diseases as well. You know, urbanization uh, has a profound effect on increasing the prevalence of these kind of conditions. But uh, Maybe our ancestors in the past also also benefited from uh, the use of psychoactive plants for various social dimensions um, and psychological dimensions too. On a more kind of cultural evolutionary standpoint as well, there's a fairly good body of evidence to suggest that altered states of consciousness are also very useful for innovation and creative problem solving. Uh, so there's a, a raft of... Uh, innovations and discoveries which came through dreams, for instance. Um, August Kukule, uh, discovery of the benzene ring, Mendeleev's discovery of the periodic table, uh, Einstein's theory of uh, of relativity, um, was it Bohr, I think, uh, and the structure of the atom, etc., etc. These are inspired by um, experiences in an altered state, dreams in this case. And we also have evidence that other altered states have also been useful for innovations and, and at least one Nobel Prize, if not numerous. Uh, for instance, uh, Carrie Mullis won the Nobel Prize for his discovery of PCR polymerase chain reaction, whereby you're able to replicate a single strand of DNA, which is hugely important for all genetic research and uh, advancements. Uh, and he did that under the influence of LSD. You know, he was inspired by his use of LSD, enabled him to to visualize the DNA molecules at a very kind of detailed level, um, which led to his discovery. He was on record about that. There's also some uh, stories that uh, Francis Crick, you know, the co-discoverer of DNA itself, was uh, was also on LSD at the time when he made his discovery. Now we don't know that for certain. It's probably apocryphal, but um, we do know he did enjoy taking LSD we just don't know if he, he did <laughs> yeah. when he made his discovery so I mean that's just the kind of uh, the anecdotal stuff and if you like but there's also kind of good research scientific research to suggest that 
psychedelics and other altered states can enhance what we call divergent thinking, you know, the ability to make fresh associations of existing ideas and knowledge and, and put them together in novel ways and come up with new solutions to old problems, um, as opposed to our ordinary everyday linear or convergent kind of thinking, which is uh, some more, more logical and, and stepwise, but um, not very good for insight and inspiration. Yeah, and I mean, there is a, as you're saying, there's a tons of research done and I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Stephen Kotler okay. and Jamie Wheel. They, they have done a lot of research and they've written a book called Stealing Fire. And uh, all of their research is about flow states. And uh, I mean, what is flow state uh, where there are four uh, neurochemicals which they mention and I, 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 even if you have a gun <laughs> on me, I can't remember what are those four. It, it's a hard pronunciation. But they activate and then you are in a flow state which means that whatever your default network is as you mentioned which is our rational problem solving mindset mm -hmm. so it somehow knocks off uh, one of our old connections so our neurons are forced to form some sort of novel connection which gives you those lateral creative ideas now we know of course in this place where we are right now i mean we have mental crisis mm -hmm. not only that we are becoming global civilization and we are getting more individualistic and mm -hmm. we don't know how to actually connect with each other and not only that but actually evolutionary biologists which i've talked to or listened to some of the good educators who you would want them to lead or teach or tell you ideas even if they are not in the favor of uh, psychedelic as such in open because of course it's it's a it's a very tricky thing to engage in mm -hmm. they are recommending and some other uh, journalists that if I, I definitely want to listen to them I respect them and they are respected and they are actually mentioning that if you want to solve these problems, it's like a, it's not a hard problem. These are now wicked problems. Like mm -hmm. there's no good way out. You have to somehow think outside of the framework where we are embedded. And uh, as you're mentioning about the creative, solve, creative problem solving, if somehow we have to understand what our default network is, we have to get out of that network and somehow see it outside of it. So, as you mentioned, that uh, cave painting. So, I, I, was, I was reading that. And uh, so, I, I, of course, I went through your book, which is DMT Dialogues. I mean, this is brilliant. I, I thought that it's, it's... I wish I can make a movie out of it. <laughs> We're yeah. making one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. you are? Oh, yeah, yeah. perfect. That is brilliant. <laughs> exactly. That's perfect. So, well, there was one... Um, I, I'm not sure if it was a Dennis McKenna or someone was mentioning these uh, cave paintings and yeah, sensory deprivation. Yeah. So if we just look at uh, the argument as an Arkham's razor, uh, mm. if, if you take uh, any kind of psychedelics and if you see those same um, um, half human and half animal uh, people and I've I've looked at those paintings or 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 not on that or you can go for uh, you can go in into the sensory deprivation and if you see something very similar, the simplest the simplest and the most scientific explanation according to the theory which is the most important theory is that clearly probably either they were doing some sort of sensory deprivation or they were experiencing those state at that time 
somehow without another without any other way or maybe it was endogenous but mm-hmm. that's like a jump sure. at that point or they were just clearly taking mushrooms or something at that point i mean this is very 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 uh, uh on the surface it has no jumps and hoops no, in sure. that yeah it's 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 currently probably one of the most favored explanations for a paleolithic rock art that it's it's taken fairly substantially well that it these our ancestors were in these altered states we don't know the exact techniques perhaps they were using uh it's interesting idea that you talk it could be endogenous i.e that they could be uh creating the altered states through their own neurobiology uh which is also an interesting point because uh although most psychedelic plants and fungus obviously you're ingesting them they have uh component chemicals that are found also in in humans so you know they act on the serotonergic system but DMT for instance which is for instance the the active chemical in in ayahuasca and and other substances is uh is is found in the human body so it's like we have our own psychedelics in in our body and uh even just breathing you know like yeah. uh, chanting or over breathing can get you into an altered state by altering your oxygen carbon dioxide ratios um again not well understood but it has profound effects on your your state of consciousness so our own inner chemistry is exquisitely tuned to going into altered states uh be it through the introduction of outside uh, chemicals or the ones that we already have inside us so altered states are inherent to are being really you know uh but it's we've kind of been shuttled into this use of uh just kind of coffee primarily tea and alcohol and sugar uh and those kind of like uh low level altered states uh even dreams which everybody does aren't aren't really well regarded in our culture whereas in other cultures they 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 have a a deep and profound uh position uh within their their society you know some communities like the shwa for instance will get up very very early in the morning and they'll all, the family will get together and they'll share their dreams and they'll make all their decisions for the rest of the day based on on what comes through in their dreams be it from from the child or from the elder or from the from the mother or the father i actually i mean as you talked about uh, different cultures so i've i've grown up in pakistan i've uh, also been uh, actually part of some other cultures life by just being there and living there so uh, there's a very important point in actually i think all of abrahamic religions and also in in the cultures over there that they say that 3 a.m. to somehow 5 a.m. it's exactly. a very important time to pray yes. now i was actually uh, reading one of your papers which is about um uh doing the graveyard shift yeah. <laughs> such an interesting name but <laughs> <laughs> and also uh, uh one of the research you did about uh when uh, your participant wake up and they actually record the dreams which they are having and now um uh, whatever i've heard all the stories and all the myths that's how i've grown up most mm-hmm. of my life uh, over there uh, they they definitely say that if you wake up at that time and then whatever dream state you are at and then you are praying and now now of course praying is a very controversial mm-hmm. problem right now and i mean i, I i'm not going to get into even no. ration, rationally defend it so and you are praying and that actually affected uh, how people lived and uh, talked to their inner self Absolutely. for centuries mm-hmm. so clearly there is a cross reference 
around the world about about this timing. Yeah, very much. I think people <clears throat> in the ancient traditions were much more attuned to these kind of sensitivities. Uh, you know, different stages of, of you know the d- daily cycles, the seasons, and so on and so forth, uh, and lived in a, in a kind of more natural world in a way. I mean, you know, our melatonin cycles as moderns living in urban environments are all over the place. But uh, in a, an ordinary melatonin cycle, you know, the the chemical that's released by your pineal gland, which induces sleep, uh, it, it typically reaches peak levels at about three o'clock in the morning. Um, but ours is is somewhat disrupted by the use of artificial lighting and so on and so forth. But so classically, you know, uh, the ancients were just in tune with with this kind of free moment of of like uh, just act, to be able to access the kind of optimum neurochemistry of their own brains. You know, it, there is some speculation, of course, that DMT may also be produced in the pineal and follow these same circadian rhythms as well, in which case, you know, you've got a, a higher level of uh, a truly psychedelic chemical floating around your brain at these particular moments, which all these cultures have chosen as, as the best time to meditate or to pray, uh, but not by accident, you know. I actually just realized, um, and I didn't connect that dot, that one of the research from that, uh, it's, it's, it's called a Flow Dojo, mm-hmm. a Flow Genome Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... They actually also uh, did some fMRI studies where they actually found out beta and alpha wavelengths where I think beta is the one, uh, please don't quote me on this, but beta is the one where the mind is really chattery and alpha is the one where you are very much focused. That is also peaking somewhere at 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. in the night, which is very interesting because, I mean, you're not just thinking that oh this is the time where i'm you know most focused and connected or somehow no absolutely not i mean there's there's definite physiological changes that we we kind of drift in and out of uh, throughout the course of a day and uh for sure that makes absolute sense i'd like to see that research that sounds very interesting yeah yeah and and another thing because there's a lot of um uh, that's that's of course that's just uh that's not um proved but i have met with a lot of people well in 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 uh, different communities, especially in Pakistan, where they were doing scouting to actually, you know, help different crowds control. They, so there's different processions, and then they train young uh, people to awake mm-hmm. for night, so you have to do this duty over there. So they train people to be up and be attentive. And s- most of the people who I know and I have shared time, they are actually addicted to and addicted is the wrong word but yeah. they are actually very fascinated and fond of uh, wait, skipping a night mm-hmm. still even if they don't have to do it right, because right, right. because they, they they say that skipping a night or night and a half actually allows them sometimes they are in in some wherever they are allows them to be in some sort of a state where they feel a lot of opening Absolutely. somehow in their chest or heart and uh, a lot of ideas for some people come in lot of forgiveness for some people coming which is also a very uh, interesting as as respect to DMT because I, I remember that if you do disturb some sort of these uh, circadian rhythms mm-hmm. and serotonin and melatonin I guess it might affect some sort of uh, pineal gland or it's possible we don't know it's, it's, it's speculative at this yeah. point I mean certainly we know that melatonin is made in the pineal gland there's good reason to think that DMT might also be made there, but we don't know for certain. Serotonin as well, 
uh, you know, so in the daytime, you, your pineal makes serotonin. At night, it gets converted into melatonin. And it's also a simple conversion from serotonin to DMT if you have the right enzyme. Uh, they've found uh, this particular chemical DMT in the pineal glands of rats. Uh, and humans aren't too dissimilar, but we haven't actually done the research yet to establish whether it truly exists in, in human pineal gland. But there's very, you know, good circumstantial evidence to to at least explore that notion. Um, and of course, so any kind of practices that you have which may affect your pineal gland functioning, such as uh, uh, changing your daylight cycles, maybe like retreats in dark rooms, that kind of thing, or even uh, changing your sleeping cycles can have effects on the production of the, the chemicals in your pineal gland, which may affect your state of consciousness. You know? yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think... This is enough introduction. Like, I hope that anyone who's listening for the first time, they're like, okay, we know what it is. But now I would actually want to <laughs> talk about uh, one of your experiences, which I read in Eco Psychopharmacology. Have I said it right? Uh, yeah, Journal no. of Eco Psychology. Oh, okay, okay. No, I'm, I'm trying to make it over complicated. Yeah. Eco Psychopharmacology. <laughs> that's, that should be a discipline. Now, that, okay. That's a really good idea. That is. We've just started it. That's oh, great. Perfect, it's a new subdiscipline. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this should be. I mean, I think wh- why I think it should be because one of the biggest strands which I've noticed in. Uh, Anyone who's doing other psychedelic research, even if they are not interested in environmentalism, they're not interested in any kind of uh, overly um, careful Mm -hmm. in some sort of uh, balances. uh, But once you somehow experience, Mm -hmm. literally experientially, these kind of aspects, you realize the importance of it. And not only that, you realize that uh, what actually environment which you think is separate from you is, is something like I'm here this mm-hmm. is always the view which I've thought that I'm living in, and then suddenly the bubble break where I thought oh I end here and mm-hmm. that is where I'm, I'm I'm as as if I'm in a zoo yes of course. and that's what we think we are in a zoo yeah, and yeah. then we are looking out in a world we don't think that we are part of the soup mm-hmm. and you are actually the world which you are looking at absolutely so one of your experiences about that blade of grass, I would <laughs> love to listen to that because it is a very fascinating uh, experience. So what was it? Where did you go? So this was uh, an experience I had on my first time um, uh, making use of this plant called Salvia divinorum. It's it's a ordinary kind of plant in a way. It's part of the mint family. It's a sage plant, uh, but it's extremely psychoactive. It has a, a unique kind of neurochemical signature uh, when you take it, uh, so it's not like any other psychedelic plant. It, it doesn't work in the same way, and it gives you quite a unique experience. I mean, they all supply quite unique experiences, but on this occasion, not really knowing what to expect, I, I found myself, my whole body was slowly petrifying from the feet and hands up, and uh, I was kind of get, being rooted to the spot quite literally. I was being turned into a small spiky shrub, and... Uh, at about the same time, when I realized I'd had this complete metamorphosis and I couldn't move, all I was in this huge field, an open field with some trees, and all the plants, you know, all the trees and all the blades of grass would just started laughing, like bursting with hysterics, you know, kind of reeling backwards and forwards going, now you know what it's like to be a plant, ha, 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 like this, which I found somewhat terrifying at the time because, you know, I, I didn't quite get the joke myself. I thought I was stuck like that. And uh, and then of course this 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 voice appeared like uh, which I interpreted to be like the voice of of the earth itself you know 
or the representative of that, and he said, "You humans, you think you know what's going on around here, but you really don't have a clue. You think you're in control, but no, you're just arrogant." And uh, I got a, a sound lecture from I don't know the spirit of the earth, and uh, and I got ridiculed by grass. You know, that's an <laughs> extremely humbling experience, um, and and it made me think very differently about. Um, you know the the nature of inter, of our interaction with nature. You know how we consider uh, other species, not just other animals, but other you know, other species, plant and fungus species, and so on, uh, and their regard of uh, do they actually have consciousness, and or do they have some kind of essence we we can communicate with, or should we really just be thinking so arrogantly as, as ourselves as human beings? You know. Um, so yeah, that's important. I think we we should generate this branch of eco-psychopharmacology <laughs> because I think it's, it, it is a, an emerging thing. Uh, somewhat, I, I did the first bit of research on this kind of really a few years ago, about five years ago, and since then there's been a few other papers, and, and they've shown systematically that people who take plant psychedelics, particularly plant psychedelics, but any psychedelics, tend to become much more engaged with nature. They 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 have an increase in their eco-consciousness. Um, they feel more connected with nature, 100% in my survey. Uh, they tend to feel more concerned. And it also transposes into changes in behavior as well. So something like half of my sample of people who had taken psychedelics said taking psychedelics had made them do more gardening, you know, for instance. Uh, another half had said it, it, it made them change their diet. You know, they started eating more vegetarian and local and organic and this kind of thing. And even uh, down to like 16% changed their entire career. So they, they gave up what they were doing and, and did something that was more ecologically orientated as a result of, of taking psychedelics. For instance, two people quit their jobs and, and started doing PhDs in botany. So I think they can have a profound effect on, on tuning people into nature. And I think that kind of comes from also, it's also connected to to the whole spectrum of experiences we see coming from psychedelics, you know, from their clinical potential as well. And that is the increasing connectivity. And we see that on the on the biological level, on the, the psychological level, the social level, the environmental level, and even the, on the cosmic level. So the, the whole scale. So on the biological level, we have this this turning down of the activity in the default mode network, which allows for this uh, interconnectivity, this hyperconnectivity between different brain regions. So suddenly different parts of your brain, which never normally communicate, start talking to each other. And it gives rise to this kind of lateral thinking, this uh, uh, divergent thinking. Um, on a psychological level, it also connects people with with themselves, you know, their, their identity, their, their deep uh, unconscious psychological material and people are able to better understand themselves so people connect with themselves as well they also connect with other people we see increases in empathy um, we see increases in people's openness to experience people just feel more open and able to engage with the world outside on in all its facets and feel more empathy and connection with other people on an on an environmental level as I've just said, people become more connected with nature, and which is hugely important right now. You know, we are actually in the biggest mass extinction in 66 million years. It's the sixth mass extinction uh, in the whole time of, of life on this planet. It's, it's, it's the sixth one in, in millions of years. So this is a big deal. Um, 
and also, you know, environmental destruction, habitat loss, pollution. We're in a terrible state right now. Climate change, verging on climate catastrophe if we don't do something very, very soon. So that's also important. And then on the final level as well, we have this uh, deeper connection with, let's call it a cosmic connection, with with the universe itself. People feel just part of a, a whole system beyond the planet itself and that can relate into into a kind of spiritual connection as well in some some respects but not necessarily so <clears throat> what you just said comes after one of the very terrifying experiences for for most of the people and and yeah you can see that if you're turning to the blade of grass it is very much terrifying so I, I just remember someone asked me that because uh, the reason why I'm mentioning this example because for most of people it seems like that oh taking this thing is me- means losing control and uh, this is why would you want to lose control and that is one of the biggest thing or it's terrifying and it is something completely uh, unnecessary now um, someone asked me uh, and they were they were mentioning it and on MDMA that how can I bring what I'm experiencing right now, which they explain as a present state where they see everything bright 3D mm-hmm. into my normal life. And, and it, it, it feels like that it actually connects to what you are saying because once you are part of what you are experiencing at that point and when when you are saying that yeah you transcend and you connect to ecology and to the world you can actually bring that to your default network if you are honest to what you experience over there but at first um whatever control we think and i think that is one of the biggest thing whatever control we think we have we realize at that point that that is actually when you are out of control. The control actually, whatever the definition of your control is, mm-hmm. if you think the control is the free will, if you think the control is to be connected to who you are, that would come after when you let go of that fear of losing control. And that is a very enigmatic kind of a relationship. And it is, of course, terrifying because always we have been told that a default network is the only and most important and sane network. Anything mm-hmm. above or beyond is either uh, crazy or not be respected. So I've seen some people who go there and think that this is crazy. There's no point. I don't want to believe it. Nonetheless, when they are back, they just are more connected and better. So how would you deny something which makes you more connected and beyond who you are and actually allows you, like even in daily life? I mean, I'm okay, yeah, but I mean, yeah, I've seen, yeah, you have seen God, brilliant. Like that is perfect. Yeah, what now? What else? What? How you come back and you do it? I guess what I've seen other people doing it, I mean, I wish I would be ever able to be that present but what I've seen other people doing it and telling me is that whatever you learn from there you don't have to stick to it as a as a very strict ideology if you bring it back and you are honest with it and you don't skip any steps so you go back and you bring enough back that your daily life actually kind of becomes something around that present state 
not only that it actually improve how you talk to your mother like maybe that's the relationship you have which is very hard to deal with but if you are present and you are more open actually i've seen people's family relationship which has been slowly broken apart come together i've seen people actually taking responsibility personal responsibility and at one level uh, doing better either it is to do their job or to make somehow their family life better which is a very odd connection by seeing god you become a better husband mm-hmm. i mean but i mean that is the somehow connection that is the implication which is very deeply rooted into our relationships and of course i mean i, I can't imagine how great it would be if we can find out more about these uh, experiences yeah absolutely i was well put as well i mean i'd like to just kind of throw out a caveat there you know i'm not saying everybody should suddenly take plant psychedelics of course um i think uh, and i wouldn't advocate that either but uh, certainly i don't think these substances are necessarily for everybody you know the clinical work shows that it's it's very beneficial to the majority of people it doesn't necessarily suit everybody uh, but there are many other methods as well for achieving these states and so you know when i talk about psychedelics it kind of includes uh, various techniques of old states more generally but yeah the the idea of uh given up control i mean like like uh, y- your own control mechanisms control you in a way as well so it's there is something to be uh, uh cherished about the liberation that you can get from going into these kind of divergent states of consciousness if you like um and i think it is is a little bit churlish to to denigrate these experiences uh as in some way you know stepping into this kind of uh uncontrolled state this kind of crazy state uh i think there's uh, I, it's not necessarily beneficial to stay there uh, i would i would say you know uh but uh i think the evidence would tend to suggest that on the whole most people benefit from accessing these old states periodically at the, at the very least um and and psychedelics needn't be the only way of course and it, so it doesn't work for everybody but uh, there are huge benefits to to be to be mined i think in exploring the potential uh, uses of 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 altered states for accessing these kind of more beneficial states you know people are having mystical experiences and they're having better relationships you know they become more happy in their job and nicer to their wives or whatever it is you know um so we find in the research uh, they did a few years ago at John Hopkins they were replicating this study called the Good Friday experiment where they give uh, a load of theologians actually uh, psilocybin mushrooms uh, in in mass and uh, they found this kind of the majority of them had given the psilocybin under placebo conditions had this mystical experience so at John Hopkins University they followed that up a few years ago and they also found that there was these huge increases in openness to experience as well So openness to experience is one of these personality dimensions which um most personality dimensions become ossified they just kind of they just become embodied they become stuck you know by the age of about 30 people's personality doesn't change very much unless you have some major life uh changes so like a uh, divorce for instance uh seems to be beneficial for women generally uh, <laughs> uh which says a lot about marriage perhaps and uh so those who could have a shift in your personality and they found that just on one high dose session of 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 psilocybin people had these massive shifts in their openness to experience equivalent of you know 20 20 years of of kind of uh, gradual change um in a positive way you know uh 
but only amongst those that had these kind of mystical experiences. It was more pronounced with people who had met God, for instance. Uh, And that have other knock-on effects, like, you know, increased compassion, increased empathy, empathy, um, and so on and so forth. So there's there's a lot to be mined here uh, without kind of like foisting it on anyone. You're not talking about some kind of program of social control or anything like that, you know, but it, there is a, there should be a, I think, and there will be in time, a facility for people to be able to access these states in, in a kind of safe and legal way. Yeah, I mean, these are powerful plants and drugs i mean you can overdose you can of course i mean there's i don't actually think, you can't overdose on, well, on psilocybin yeah, okay yeah you can't <laughs> overdose on psilocybin you would just sleep or i don't know what? i don't know i think you'd have to eat there's something like the equivalent of like eight kilos or okay. it's, it's not even physically possible <laughs> uh, okay yeah um, so of course i mean these are powerful pl- i mean sometimes when we do say oh yeah this some uh, a lot of other uh, yeah I, mean, I think humans would find a way to somehow kind of mix it with something else or mm. make it a routine where they would actually somehow destroy something. And then it becomes the problem where the news story comes and it's associated with, yes, yeah, so, well, of course, they are very powerful and they are, your brain is full of chemicals and that is chemical. If you mix something, what people die from water. I mean, if, if, if you, <laughs> yeah. if you, you can you die drink from, too much. Yeah, you die. Yeah. yeah. So, of course, this is, the, the, I mean, from both sides, uh, I think some people, of course, uh, who are doing the research or advocate, they would say, you oh, know, this is completely safe. I think one argument which I... I wouldn't say they're completely no, safe. No, 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 But uh, in the right context, you know, in the right set and setting, the right dosage or purity, um, you can you can reduce the risks hugely. I mean, physiologically, they're they're very safe. Uh, the known classic psychedelics, not all psychedelics, because there's a lot of new research kind of chemicals, so-called, uh, which are some of which are toxic. You know, iboga's uh, quite toxic. This has been used traditionally, but physiologically, like so, things like psilocybin and LSD are very physiologically safe. There's no known overdose yeah. for those substances. <clears throat> there's very few side effects in acute use. Uh, there are potential risks of people having difficult psychological experiences, i.e. bad trips, which can be ameliorated by preparation, by the right setting, the right set, the right context, and also integration afterwards. Uh, and occasionally we see that people may have a psychotic, prolonged psychotic reaction, but we don't think those people who have psychotic reactions are uh, anything above the kind of background baseline of people who would develop psychosis anyway because large-scale epidemiological studies are showing actually people have taken psychedelics and then unlike other all other drugs they're not at an increased risk of, of developing mental health conditions in fact they seem to be somewhat inoculated or, or they they're less likely to have mental health problems if they have taken psychedelics yeah, so so that is clear that if you do have uh, um, some sort of a schizophrenic problem, maybe not um, somehow. Well, th- it's controversial. I mean, certainly in the clinical work, we we, we screen people out who have schizophrenia. But not only that, I mean, it's if you have schizophrenia, and I've known I've met people who have schizophrenia who take psychedelics, and and they say it's mostly it, it it's they find it beneficial. Sometimes it can exacerbate their condition. It's not been studied clinically. Well, it was a little bit in the 60s. They actually used it as a treatment and had some successes um, with some condi- what they call used to call childhood schizophrenia, which now we call kind of you know severe autism. 
Um, I've lost my train of thought a bit there, but uh, so, but also we screen out people who have first degree relatives of, of schizophrenia. It's, it's not so much necessarily people who have existing mental health conditions because that's a kind of bit more of a known quantity, but maybe people who are at risk of developing them. So, if you've got first degree relatives with schizophrenia, you're in, in a higher risk category for for then exhibiting it, and it could be that the psychedelic experience could be a catalyst for triggering the, the psychotic episode. Yeah. That's how we, we tend to view it. But of course, people do have difficult experiences. I, I get people uh, being referred to me and contacting me, you know, that that had a, a difficult psychological experience and they haven't integrated it well and they're exhibiting, you know, poor mental health as a result. Well, I mean, I personally, I think that a difficult experience, any difficult experience, whatever that is, it's not really, uh, I would say, somehow physiologically toxic because it's mentally maybe difficult, but mm-hmm. you get a lot out of it, definitely. Yeah, on the whole, people tend to, to find them very psychologically beneficial. The, the psychological benefits, particularly in, in the more congenial context you know, of use, seem to far outweigh the, the negative uh, psychological effects that are reported by a, a, a small minority. You mentioned Iboga, and uh, funny enough, this is, this is what I really wanted to ask you, that Terence McKenna w- mentioned a lot about um, that, oh, the mushrooms are somehow like a technology which has been made by plants, or 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 it's a, it's a, some panspermia that the life came from somewhere else and then this is one of the very crazy technologies which is very sophisticated although i was listening to another chemist his name hamilton morris oh, yeah uh, so he mentioned about ibolga he says that actually i don't think that mushrooms are that different because it's somehow very classical kind of psychedelic it's not that hard from uh, I th- from two step you get to mushrooms it's not that uh, mm. but he said Ibolga is like a 3D yeah and uh, it's 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 he, he mentioned that it's like alien technology and not only that it also act upon various different uh, mm-hmm. mental states so I mean that would be great if I actually wanted to know more about this <laughs> about Ibolga yeah, yeah it's, it's not uh, so the Ibogaine is the, the 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 chemical from Iboga the Iboga is a root plant uh, the root of a plant and uh, yeah it's a much more complex uh, chemical than than psilocybin for instance LSD is also somewhat of a complex chemical but it's it's semi-synthetic you know so this is a kind of plant-based chemical it's in the same family of, of chemicals tryptamine and, uh, you know, like all these different chemicals, they all give rise to different states of consciousnesses. They're all all the states of consciousness and they have some generic similarities, but they have their own unique uh, flavor to them as well. You know, uh, I mean, and the, there's such a diversity of them. I mean, currently we figure there's about 500, maybe more now kind of known and tested different psychedelic substances, but they're increasing at an exponential rate, you know. Uh, by a factor of uh, 10 every 50 years. Mm-hmm. So 50 years from now, there'll be like 5,000 different psychedelic substances that we have been known and tested. Uh, so the number's always increasing. They all have different different properties and get you into different old states of consciousness. Uh, some are more simple structurally and have more simple effects than others. Um, 
So, for instance, like DMT seems to work on a huge range of, of different neuroreceptors, even uh, some receptor systems in the brain which we haven't found neurotransmitters for, uh, traceamine receptors uh, and the sigma-1 receptor site as well. So we, we're also learning a lot about ordinary, everyday brain chemistry from exploring these substances, uh, which is exciting times. Uh, but the, the whole idea of them being alien technologies is, is wonderful. Um, Obviously, it's it's hard to kind of actually comment about that in a scientific way uh, and say, well, yes, they are, or no, they're not. Uh, but uh, I see a friend of mine, Andrew Gallimore, who uh, I collaborate with, has just written a, a book called Alien Information Theory about uh, DMT and uh, biochemistry and also philosophy, you know, the nature of mind. But they do seem to give you very sophisticated uh, experiences. So, I mean, it's always astonishes me how you go and see these uh, indigenous tribal people who live a very, very simple existence on the land and, you know, traditionally called primitive by our anthropologists of old. And they look so humble and simple. And then you sit with them and then you... You take the mushrooms or the peyote, whatever, and then you, the things you see are so far beyond any kind of thing we can imagine, and so sophisticated in in their visionary technology that it, it's absolutely mind blowing. And these guys are just sitting there looking like, you know, they just crawled out of a bush, and yet they're having these the most astonishing experiences. You know, where they they just transcend time and space, and just uh, yeah, bring back these visions. So, so, so DMT. Of course, we are talking about DMT, and and I think it would be interesting to actually go to these experiences. I mean, what do you actually see? What do you actually experience? What do who do we meet over there? What is going on over there? Because DMT, as you said, we are finding a lot of different psychedelics, and this is supposed to be uh, in nearly every plant. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of plants, majority yeah. of plants. Uh, so many, probably, I mean, theoretically, all of them uh, at uh, very small quantities, yeah. So, uh, so DMT is something which, uh, when I was reading uh, about tryptophan, which is, I think, uh, one of the oldest common ancestors of life. Yeah. So, and then, f so so this, this chemical exists at that point so i would it would be great if if you can introduce that when life started and when this chemical appear and how we come to dmt and then we find it in ourselves so i i mean not a i'm not a uh, i don't know what the the term is for somebody who who looks at the kind of uh, archaeology of uh, different chemicals but yeah so i mean you have your 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 essential uh, uh chemicals and the so dmt comes in a little bit later it's not totally essential for life uh, it's not a prime a primary compound it's a, it's called a secondary compound so these are things that have evolved which may be very common so so dmt is is widely distributed possibly in all plants it seems to be in all mammals uh, it seems to be found in fish, uh, in amphibians, everywhere except insects and, and fungus. Uh, but fungus have their own version. It's called psilocybin, which is actually structurally very similar to DMT. So so it's just only the insects, really, we think. We it, don't it, have it. Is it the 5-MU DMT uh, one in fungus? No, it's, no. Uh, f so it's 4-hydroxy uh, DMT. Okay. 
Oh, is that bifotenine? I got them all over. Or five hydroxy, four hydroxy, I think. Okay. Yeah. Which is psilocin. Uh, so it's it's very it's a type of DMT. It's a, it's the same kind of basic structural as a DMT and then DMT, which we find everywhere else. Um, so it's it's kind of widely occurring, and it's a, but it's a secondary compound, and but a very widely distributed and ancient one. You know, it's, it's wide distribution would suggest it's also mm-hmm. very very old. I mean, it's certainly much older than humans. Okay, so we we've kind of co-evolved with with DMT, um, which is astonishing. And and these secondary plant compounds typically, or animal compounds in this case, are like the uh, the messenger compounds, the messenger molecules that plants use for communication or other species use for communication, sometimes internally, you know, as a communication mechanisms between different parts of their organism or externally as well. So, for instance, uh, uh, certain tomato plants will uh, sample uh, the saliva of aphids uh, that attack them. They're able to identify the specific species, you know, biochemically, and then release these kind of secondary compounds, these alkaloids, into the atmosphere, which will attract the specific predator for that specific aphid. So they're, they're used to communicate and, and manipulate both the internal and the external environment. So they are like... Uh, Collectively, you can think of them as the kind of, uh, if you think of the whole ecosystem as being this kind of complex, symbiotic, uh, sometimes parasitic interconnection of relationships between different organisms, these secondary compounds are like the neurotransmitters of the ecosystem, uh, the, the things that communicate between all the different species existing within an ecosystem. Um, I did had one of the time this realization at some conscious altering experiences that well this is funny enough because we do think that oh we are the only intelligent species although now we are finding out with artificial intelligence research and some other uh, findings which people are doing with the uh, feedback loop of forest that for intelligent you do intelligence you don't really need brain you need uh, somehow neural networks. That's what somehow creates intelligence and that's why AI research were able to get some success, although they are finding a lot of difficulty in their uh, limitation of sense of place. So, mm-hmm. so if you don't have an agency, it's hard to somehow have a problem-solving experience because it's just an abstract experience. Sure. Yeah, so... Uh, so, meaning so, is important. Yes, yes. Meaning is very important. <laughs> it's like one of the most important things. Really. It works for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, now we 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 see that the, of course the, the the plants in itself, which are connected to the land, and now they are doing a lot of soil and tree communication research for last four or five years they're finding out more than how much they share resources they talk to each other in a way that they you know uh, spread um, uh, fumes not fumes like smells where Mm -hmm. it actually discourages uh, uh, animals and also to the other plant species to change their structure so that the I mean it's a lot of Mm -hmm. and then they also uh, share nutrients underneath and allocate resources absolutely and, and and then they have a whole feedback system where you realize now we, of course, can see and travel that a forest over here is impacting a desert over there. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a very complex intelligent system. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's super complex and super codependent. You know, you affect one thing uh, 
and it can have profound effects on the entire ecosystem. You know, uh, I just read this brilliant book, uh, I Contain Multitudes, about uh, microbiology and, and how by taking out a sharks from a, from a coral reef, you affect the whole ecosystem down to, to the coral uh, because it affects the, the the sharks feed on the, the the fish that feed on the little fish which feed on the plankton which then uh, you know affects if you the, if you take the sharks out it affects the whole system you get too much plankton and then you the 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 coral dies basically because it becomes starved of oxygen it just becomes you know strangled basically so like uh, these ecosystems all ecosystems are, are hugely interdependent and hugely interconnected um and of course, there is all these complex communications going on. So, so to say, you know, that you can only really have intelligence or maybe even consciousness uh, if you have a nervous system like a brain and and a kind of central nervous system is 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 I think is is kind of falling out of favor as well. You know, so people like Christoph Koch, for instance, talking about uh, integrated information theory. Uh, it's about kind of integration and complexity, and if a system is is su- suitably integrated and complex, it it can have consciousness, uh, and that could go from you know the molecular level all the way up to human brains, which is the most kind of complex integrated system that we know of. Uh, and you think of mycelia, you know, some mycelia can stretch for several miles underground, and they they're effectively like neural networks because they have billions upon billions of of uh, mycelial interconnections and uh, in much the same way we have neurotransmitter different you know probably hundreds of different neurotransmitters there uh, some fungus have uh, hundreds of different genders you know so you've got these extremely complex uh, underground communication orgies like quite literally orgies going on with mycelia uh, and so what makes us think they're not conscious you know uh, it's arrogant. Yeah, 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 arrogance. Yeah, I think it's 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 a kind of human uh, eco uh, species centricism and and hubris really to to presume and assume that we're the 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 only conscious or the most <laughs> conscious kind of beings on the planet. I mean, we are very powerful species, to be honest. So it's not a sure. somehow a stretch it's 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 actually a side effect of being powerful which somehow has been allowed by the nature in itself although uh-huh. although that is that is a tricky point where that opens up a door where yeah you're very powerful yeah of course you have been allowed to be very powerful and maybe we are experimenting and maybe we are now separated from evolution and maybe that might be the reason uh which opens up a door where something that complex is something maybe having intelligence let's not even bring in consciousness to make mm-hmm. it easier mm-hmm. if you take uh, plants you literally are taking DMT sometimes mm-hmm. uh, I mean um, in ayahuasca form or some other forms but let's say if, even if you're DMT is pretty much synthetic so if even if you're taking that uh, yes you are communicating at a completely different level but ayahuasca p- particularly I mean y- you are somehow mixing those chemicals with your chemicals to have an interspecies kind of dialogue which we think that oh yeah that's not even a possibility although if we know that this is a very complex intelligent system and intelligence communicating in whatever way I mean maybe post pre-language however that might be mm-hmm. that can have profound effects 
And that might not only be what you think or your past memories or your visions or your unfelt traumas. Yes, that's all, you know, part of it. But I think that is one of the reasons why some intelligence is telling a very powerful species. And I think I hear this message a lot that yeah, well, you are arrogant and you need to me. see. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the problem. Not me, not me. Like, that's 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 the pure definition of human right yeah, yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you are. Yeah, exactly. uh, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, we are we are we are arrogant. So yeah. uh, that's what the message is there. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Why? Uh, the, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm assuming it, but I've heard this a lot. That the message is very clear about the destruction of uh, environment also. And regarding that, that, oh, well, you do think that you run the show. Yeah. But that's not. But you, you. Well, it's like the, it's like this difference between like, um, like you said, it's like uh, us viewing ourselves as being apart from nature instead of a part of it, you know. Like we're we're looking at nature like it's a zoo, and, and really, it's we are nature, you know. We're and we're part of this really super complex integrated system, this whole, this biome, this microbiome, this uh, macrobiome, you know, this the planet. And so, yeah, I, I think that the, the so the message coming through, which often people report, is it's not just like oh they take psychedelics and they feel more connected. It's often you know there's. There's some chastising usually going on in there. It's like, you come on, wake up, you monkeys! What what are you doing? Like, uh, have you had? Haven't you had enough yet? You know, have, aren't you sick of all this like pollution and depression, anxiety, and just like, what are you doing? You know, look look at the mess you're making. You you've killed off half of the 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 wildlife on the planet in the last few decades. You know, that, that that's astonishing. Uh, the species are dying at a terrifying rate. You know, we could have entire ecosystem collapse. We we could be looking at I mean, absolute disaster. Like we could be seeing the displacement of millions and millions of people through various e- ecological disaster, food shortages, you know, food security could completely go out the window. It could be riots, famines, cannibalism. I mean, that's... Uh, what we could be looking at, we have to really seriously stare that in the face and, and accept that this is all human made as well. Uh, and this could be our, our, our future very, very soon. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's important that we do wake up and, and, and feel more kind of uh, ecoism rather than egoism, you know, that we become more ecologically orientated um, and and connect with our environment and be part of it, not apart from it. And I think plant psychedelics are a very profound way of accessing that. Yeah, you can have that through meditation. We find it as well. Actually, people have near death experiences. They they tend to become more, uh, and higher, more empathic, more humanitarian, and also more ecologically engaged as well. It's so the, there's there's various ways to wake up. I think, and uh, but it needs to happen on a kind of collective level across the a whole species or, or our fate and and perhaps half of the species on the planet or more is was also in the balance okay so i mean yeah there's, there's not, i don't think i can add anything to that <laughs> <laughs> but uh now this i think if we if we really want to bring some systems what what is going on i think for me personally one of the most important thing which i think is what you mentioned about um somehow creating an embassy uh where we can explore the dmt spaces now 
a DMT space is something um, which is a which is a reality, which is a hallucination. There's a different definition, and definitions goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, but 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 you experience something, and 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 sometimes you experience it in just pure abstraction. Sometimes you experience it as in entities. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. I think there's there's less uh, of that experience that you completely forget who you are, but most of the time people kind of know that there's an observer observing. Mm-hmm. There's an interaction with entities. I think for me at this point, this is one of the most important thing, and I loved that idea. I mean, it is practical, first of all, mm-hmm. although it, it looks amazingly romantic, and I think that is mm-hmm. one of the biggest example of Uh, brilliant ideas that they look if you read the line that my goodness that is romantic i mean uh-huh. this is passionate although if you look deeper into it it is scientifically and empirically possible mm-hmm. to actually do it if we are somehow slowly you know move towards that direction yeah sure i would love to know more about that line yeah so i mean the, so the notion of dmt entities like encounters with other other than new beings in, a, in an altered state under the influence of DMT. I mean, it's, it's, the idea has been around for a while. It's, it's very prevalent. People who have a high-dose DMT experience with ayahuasca or with just with DMT, will, and the majority have, a, have an encounter experience, okay? So it's, it's very, very prevalent. It's also kind of quite re- reliable. Uh, not 100%, but it's... And, and people... The, pr- the most astonishing thing is that people feel like it's more real than than their everyday waking real. It it has such a kind of profundity and intensity and reality to it that it, it challenges your very notion of of what reality is. That you feel that you have had contact with some uh, other than you being, and you know these come in all shapes and and sizes. You know, a bit often like little tricksy little elfy gnomey characters. Uh, or very profound deity-like beings or angelic beings or super intelligent kind of consciousness that you encounter. Um, and so we're trying to get to the bottom, or I'm trying to get to the bottom with some colleagues, you know, what is the nature of these things? It's very difficult to kind of attack what is basically a metaphysical phenomena from, from a, a positivist scientific perspective and, and say, okay, so what's the nature of these beings and, and uh, is it just a production of our own psychology under the influence of uh, psychoactive drugs or is there some way in which we can say that they they uh, we can explore these things at face value as well and say okay they they may actually appear to be they may actually be real in some sense um and a lot of my colleagues will just laugh at the very notion of even trying to engage with this question but i think it, it it's it's important because uh it speaks to the very nature of reality itself uh which is no small thing <laughs> no 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 i mean i actually been trained of course as a social researchers and a researcher and Yes, of course. It's a it's it's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. Uh, and also, because I've grown up in a lot of stories, a lot of myths, and uh, just tons of it's it's an open university system. So I ha- I know, uh, just by instincts that that there's just a lot which people can get lost into. Mm-hmm. So I actually my reaction, as you can always imagine, if I'm going to a school which I'm getting rationalized, my reaction is. You know how Buddhists say that there was a mountain and then there was not, 
And that's when my was like, nope, there, this is like too much. Yeah. And I needed to get out of it. So uh-huh. I can I can I can see from of course the other perspective like very clearly. Although as I'm reading more and I'm researching more into it, uh because my my uh, uh topic for PhD which I'm trying to also look for include a lot of psychedelic experiences. So Fantastic. I mean, I've I've been looking for it for last four or five years. So uh not i i didn't read all that in last week so <laughs> that would be that be impressive yeah, yeah. Oh, well, not really yeah no but but one thing which i realized that there's a, a the, the if we if we if a lot of people are trying to find out what is the nature of consciousness or what is the nature of reality is yeah now um we are definitely part of whatever reality we are experiencing now we have consciousness although Uh, this is the notion where you do see entities and i i i've realized that to understand what those entities are is very very important although an entity experienced by a consciousness tells you as much about you as it tells you about its own mm-hmm. existence absolutely now that 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 question is actually so essential that if you are really trying to find out what the nature of consciousness is i think that is fundamental I happen to agree <laughs> to to that <laughs> yeah, question totally, totally not only that there's a uh uh um Nick Bostrom mm-hmm. he's a the simulation uh, hypothesis yes. yes of course I mean simulation hypothesis I mean I uh, it actually I mean this actually fits in to well he says I can quickly just uh, it would be good if you actually if you have any connection with Yeah I'm, I mean like uh, to some some extent it's like the kind of matrix hypothesis you know like we're living in a matrix you know like in the film the matrix it's like uh, there are it's a simulation or it's actually not a simulation it's it's cuz it's it's not simulating anything else it it is it is what it is but it's like you're you're stuck within a, an artificial world basically which is being programmed by some higher order beings uh to make it appear to us as real and somehow we're experiencing it as real but actually it's a, an illusionary world that is has been generated for us you know so he he puts three aspects he says that well either all the technological civilizations who are capable of actually building a virtual reality dies off because they destroy either themselves or they somehow find a piece of technology which uh, no matter what your level of advancement is somehow destroys them so the level what so the thing which you find they has a consequences which destroys terrifying mm-hmm. second is that the civilization which has the technology to actually build certain uh, simulated realities where you can actually run you know history and find out about the you can you can simulate it and you can run it back and you know what happened to the dinosaurs like really they actually lose interest in that and no one pursue that mm-hmm. like none of the people in whole of the universe pursue anything like that or third we do make it and the probability of that is that any either one of them making another one and then continuing to make a lot of it so uh, the probability of you being the only one original civilization is pretty thin sure although what is the interesting point about this and what people agree is that they say well that doesn't discount that to be an illusionary uh reality that's different from also what sometimes people would call it illusion or dream and dream in a way where they use it in a very discounted way mm-hmm. not in our uh, not the not the 
yeah. uh, uh, phenomenology of uh, the DMT studies, mm-hmm. but the uh, social research studies. So they say that, well, if you want to know what is the consciousness, what is the nature of your reality is the beings who are there are actually under the influence of their own uh, um, metaphysical, not metaphysical, physical laws, but they are not under the ones which they have created. So Mm -hmm. they are like kind of gods in that way. Although the turtles can go all the way up. Absolutely. And that is the concept which comes yeah, yeah. all the time yeah, in yeah. layers. So which level of the of the matrix are you in, right? Yes. And yes. who's the one making it right at the top or is there a top, you know? But but not only that, the, he mentions one very important thing which I think connects to what you are saying is that if you want to explore what is the nature of your reality, you definitely explore the nature of your environment. But mm-hmm. I think I have s- just a slightly different view. I think, well, if you are the uh, s- simulated kind of a character who somehow is a messenger which moves around, it's pretty powerful. If you poke in, and as we are poking in a lot into, mm-hmm. you know, Hadron Collider, we should definitely see that. I think it's it blows me away. It actually sometimes, you know, bring me to tear that we are like looking into something so crazy and we are trying to look into these very small particles. But if there's a uh, 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 virtual reality argument where humans actually can build a microscope and look inside of their own somehow stretch marks of their own existence, that can show, according to actually very credible scientists, like it's a scientific view, the nature of your reality, which could actually tell who built you because that would actually not be very separated. So, I mean, what are we doing with DMT? We are actually stretching the fabric of what, where we are. Now, Mm -hmm. that is actually fits in exactly what you are uh, writing about that line. And I'm, I'm... reading this and i'm thinking this is this is actually very important <laughs> what what like they are trying to say could be done right now if uh-huh. if we really you know try to look into these because i haven't had that encounter yet mm-hmm. but i'm sure that that encounter is something which i am associating to the stretching of reality mm-hmm. so it would be great to it certainly expands your horizons on your uh, experience of the world. Yeah, for sure. There's the kind of a before DMT and after DMT kind of view on on what is possible uh, to experience. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a stretching or a, a, a stretching, let's call it, of of uh, reality for sure. Um, as with all other states, you know. But uh, yeah, it's a super interesting talk. I think. I mean, it's, all, it's, it's so difficult to actually get at an experimental way. And it's interesting that there's so many kind of fields of research now which are really highlighting the fact that, you know, it, w- w- the way we actually ordinarily perceive the world is, is not as it is, you know. So this great book recently, The Order of Time, you know, time is somehow just completely illusionary. It's, it's like a, it's, it's a, a perceptional-driven thing that... that we somehow create the time with our with our consciousness, you know. Like uh, physics is telling us this. Uh, 
there's some astonishing things that coming out of physics which make my kind of area of research look really really tame you know <laughs> to entertain the idea of like uh, uh, interspecies communication or telepathy or literally kind of parting from your body it's it's uh is insignificant almost in in terms of what we're understanding about um the nature of reality from from physics currently it's it's mind blowing so i think there's a lot to learn and a lot to discover and i think but we shouldn't be shy of of exploring these realms um in an open and honest way you know let's not like just which science has often been done in, in, in these kind of realms, in, in the realm of the transpersonal and altered states, has often just been consigned to this kind of catch-all dustbin of, of hallucination. And I think it's far more nuanced than that. And there's a lot we can learn, not just about neurobiology, but about the, uh, the nature of who we are, you know, fundamentally as well. Um, so let's try and explore this phenomenon. You know, can we, in fact find uh, some kind of signals or patterns of commonalities of these encounters which go beyond uh, some simple reductionistic explanation it may well be that it, there is a there is a kind of particular module in your brain which somehow seems to create uh, rather invasive emotionless praying mantises that operate on you which seems to be a very common experience on DMT amongst people who weren't aware of it you know, there may be a part of your brain which somehow triggers that particular <laughs> subset of experiences in a reliable way. Uh, I don't know what that part of your brain is doing in there. That begs even more questions. <laughs> but, you know, I think there's I think we need to be just approaching this in a very open way and, and, and really looking at what's going on and uh, how we can understand the data, you know, the evidence of uh, what what's happening. Uh, I mean, if, if Nick Bostrom... Uh, can get away with his uh, his uh, assuredness of this simulation hypothesis, then we shouldn't necessarily so easily discredit the the nature of these entities, perhaps on DMT. Well, I think the gap between uh, we here sitting, which are somehow you know cooked in some sun, or no, not in sun. Sorry, sun was not even there when we were cooked. <laughs> maybe some sort of a star. Yeah, and we are definitely somehow words and carbon. That's like that's a weird combination anyway, mm -hmm. and the language how it was formed and how it evolved. So the gap from there to here is big and huge. So I think if we need to close that gap, the the the, the we have to take a little bit of an adventurous uh, steps and brave ones and yeah. and 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 as you're saying, which include a lot of openness. Mm, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, one of the things I've really been intrigued by is is one phenomenon from DMT is is extra dimensional percepts, which has received no real attention, I don't think, in that the majority of people who have high dose DMT experience geometric visual percepts, which seem to have more than three spatial dimensions. Uh, many, you know, in some cases, people try and explain them as like you know, it's beyond the ordinary understanding of dimensionality. I mean, we don't really understand visual perception enough. There's some kind of miracle that occurs when we go from electrochemical signals to this 3D interactive holodeck we call vision. Mental imagery, again, is, a, is another kind of step from there. But we understand the the visual geometry of three dimensions. You know, we can experience it, uh, but we don't understand. We can't even 
imagine i don't think unless you have the experience of 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 a fourth dimensional space you know dimensions more than three di- spatial dimensions and yet this is commonly reported on on psychedelics and only has any any corollary in in uh, in physics you know like in m theory like the when the physicists talk about having 11 dimensions of of uh, space time uh so it'd be interesting to see perhaps what physicists would make of dmt experiences of 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 encountering these uh high dimensional percepts you know i think there's some tools to be used here for some exploration of state specific sciences as charles tart said of you know like uh, exploring science from within altered states of consciousness um and i was i was lucky enough to have been involved in uh, uh, some research where we took 40 top level scientists and engineers from various uh, top universities and gave them lsd most of them for the first time with a view to looking at their own research problems you know uh some astonishing things came from the physicists it it was really truly wonderful so i think there's there's an opportunity here to think kind of interdisciplinarily and and explore our understanding of these uh concepts from within inside these old states as well for insight purposes has mathematicians um have taken it is there a study where Yeah. Yeah, well, we didn't have many mathematicians. We did have at least one uh higher order mathematician, yeah, high dimensional mathematician. He, uh who was yeah, it was fantastic. Uh it was basically able to see his equations in 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 a kind of visual analog form rather than just as a as a string of uh algebra. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I think yeah, this is very, because there's another um physicist david deutsch mm-hmm. very interesting i i would highly recommend mm-hmm. i think he's after listening to him i definitely had to go to sleep <laughs> no 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 i was overstimulated yeah, right. i couldn't do anything else yeah. it's that kind of uh, amazing yeah so he actually uh pres- and i think there is no one who can actually uh, dispute or argue with what he's saying he's saying that the knowledge exist independent and it's a property of universe mm-hmm. and uh, there is always ever discovering knowledge which exists which humans would discover rather than create mm-hmm. hence it's a it's a it's some sort of a, a, a independent existence mm-hmm. and a, and a property which would not somehow be captured in only the physical aspect of universe although although you know you can have uh, experiments but uh the the realms where these these i don't think he used the word realms but <laughs> the the these two would be separated and i think if uh, this is one of the theories which he's bringing in so i could not imagine if the physicist who actually believe that this is what it is i mean it's very complicated i'm trying mm-hmm. to just condense it as mm-hmm. as much as possible i mean i definitely try to write it down i can try to <laughs> tr- explain it, but it's going to take way longer and i might have to just <laughs> that's it but i think if this is something which uh, um somehow can be translated mm-hmm. through this research i think it would be uh, was i able to explain it in yeah, some yeah i kind of get that yeah it's, i like yeah. that it's like a self-existent property of the universe that yeah. knowledge is something not man made it's it's something discovered it's like there 
which is something different from either information or data. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And 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 there's a theory about uh, well, as you've talked about meaning. So so mm-hmm. um, meaning somehow is uh, you use you, you have a resistance. Yeah. And and in you challenge whatever challenge you have or problem you have and then you improve and then in that you find meaning mm-hmm. and somehow you unlock your potential. Yeah. And especially humans have been rewarded evolutionary to explore different spaces. So I mean, what else even if you are trying to find out human potentiality, even if you are trying to find out a potential which is somehow related to knowledge. Yeah. What other state other than psychedelic states or actually uh, not only just psychedelic states i think a lot of psychedelic plants put you through a lot of scrutiny mm-hmm. where you challenge each and every aspect of who you are i mean i guess there's a lot of vomiting also <laughs> no, <laughs> not always not always yeah. <laughs> not always there's a lot of initial sick feeling from mm-hmm. some pe- i mean there's a, there's and then there's a lot of confrontation of whatever fears or um illusions we are living in so very much so i mean not always but often yeah i mean it can be that you you know you you first have to kind of traverse through your own unconscious sewer and your shadow and and till you can emerge out into the light you know uh but the yeah the the more you delve into the shadow the 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 further into the light you can probably extend as well You okay with time? I uh, I'm gonna have to head off soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I'm really me. loving this. I'm, no, no. How are we doing for time? Uh, we are five forty-five. Oh, I should probably go. Yeah, I'm a yeah, PhD yeah. student waiting. Yeah.